Welcome to the SG Engage podcast, where it's all social good all the time. Sit back and relax as the brightest minds from across the social good community engage with trends, big ideas, and best practices to help you drive impact. Welcome to this episode of the SG Engage podcast. I'm your host, Steve McLaughlin with Blackboard. What if everything we know about fundraising is mostly wrong? That's the topic for today's episode. And, and joining me once again on the show uh, is a guest we've had on the past, Joe Waters, who's a cause marketing specialist and also one of my co-instructors at the New Strategies program at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business. Joe and I have participated in that program for a number of years. And this topic of what if everything we know about fundraising is mostly wrong has been something we've we've shared with this group participates in the program for for a while now and and we're just going to see where this takes us today. Welcome to the show, Joe. Yeah, it's nice to be here, Steve, and it was nice presenting with you albeit virtually with Georgetown this year. Yeah, we've we've done it in person, live and in person yep. for a number of years, but uh this year we uh we all did the virtual route. Uh yep. it's it's been interesting to watch your disembodied video recorded self <laughs> talking, but then uh, you're also able to, I think, be more engaged in the Q&A because you've, you've already done the hard part. That's right. That's right. And what's good is you have everyone's name when they ask you a question beside their box, right? Exactly. Yeah. No, you're right. <laughs> so this idea that just about everything we know about fundraising is mostly wrong is, is something I've been talking about for a while, but, but we've had that conversation as well. And one of the things maybe to start with is this idea of, at least in the U.S., we often talk about the fact that, you know, there's 1.5 million nonprofits and that's, mm -hmm. that's a lot and it's growing. But the reality is that the vast majority of those organizations have very small amount of total revenue. In fact, of the one and a half million nonprofits in the U.S., only about 100,000 of them have total revenue over a million. And that's counting yep. fee for service, grants, mm -hmm. fundraising. So the reality is it's big, but most of the revenue is, is concentrated in a very small number of nonprofits. That's right. And... You know, what I think is interesting about that is, again, the, the number might get the headlines, but only about 6% of all nonprofits end up getting 96% of the revenue. Mm -hmm. And even when we look at fundraising, which is something, you know, we spend a lot of time looking at, fundraising uh, or sort of private support from individuals is only 14% of all that revenue. Most of it is fee-for-service yeah. governments, grants, and contracts. And I know something that's something you and I see, Joe, sometimes is where yep. there are a lot of organizations, they've really specialized in fee-for-service or grants, mm -hmm. or in many cases, it's corporate support. And this whole right. idea of fundraising or individual giving is a bit of a new concept to them. That's right. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting to see, you know, those types of numbers out there, right? And some of the challenges that so many organizations and, you know, I am just blown away too the number that I, exactly as you just said, Steve, that are fee for service, right? Yeah. Fee for service is the largest percentage. It's roughly, let me double check my math here. It's 48%, 48% fee for service. So that's things like you know, uh, I, I paid a, a ticket to go to a performing arts 
or or really it's a lot of cases it's the services these organizations are providing and certainly you get tuition and other things certainly show up in that fee for service category yeah the education component of that of that has to be huge yeah yeah and yet we know a lot of organizations certainly that private support is is really vital really super important oftentimes that private support from from fundraising is filling in the gaps that are left mm-hmm. by a lack of either it could be um government funding or just, you know, where they're trying to grow more of their mission and they're reaching out to individuals to help to help drive that revenue from a, from a bottom line perspective. That's right. And what we think too, and I'd be interested to hear your opinion on this, Steve, the individual piece seems like it's only going to become more important as the years go forward here. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, when we look at fundraising, 70% of giving comes from individuals and another 9% yep. from bequests. So we're at yep. 80%, right? 80% coming from individuals, yep. about 16% from foundations. But we know a lot yep. of that giving from foundations are family foundations or certainly the rise of the donor advice fund. Only 5% from corporations, and that includes yeah. gift in kind. So yep. I, I think oftentimes when we, we talk about the the breakdown, people are very surprised. Like, wow, corporations is only 5%? Yep. And that's been true for at least a decade. Yeah. And one of the things, that's one of the things I really try to educate people on too, Steve, is people have to get their priorities in order, right? In terms of where the money's coming from. When you have dead people giving twice as much as corporations do, you have to think about what the hierarchy is in terms of what you should be focusing on. So sometimes I occasionally get that call from a nonprofit that says, you know, Joe, I'm just going to focus on corporations for now on. Big mistake. Or, or to focus on that to the exclusivity of anything else. Like, I don't want to focus on foundations. I mean, part of this is there's just a need to be diversified in where mm-hmm. your revenue is coming from across the board. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as someone who does cost marketing and corporate partnerships, one of the things that I've learned is the power of corporations is not in the checkbook, but in actually with the stakeholders, with the customers and the employees. So in a lot of ways, it's an individual strategy. Yeah, I love that you brought that up because to your point, a lot of organizations want to engage with a corporation around a sponsorship or something related to event or a program they're trying to run. But certainly, you know this firsthand over in the past few years, the really savvy organizations have figured out, yeah, I still want to do that. But what I really want is I want access and engagement with the employees, associates at that corporation, yep. because that's where the long-term relationship comes from. Isn't that really where a lot of times these these organizations or the, the strategies evolve over time is realizing uh, that's where they have to focus? Yeah, absolutely. Especially if you can, you know, that's one of the things too, that when we look beyond point of sale with certain programs is an opportunity with many types of cause marketing programs to actually be, build that relationship, get people's names, addresses, email addresses, so you can continue the relationship with those people. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a big opportunity out there for people. And I would argue in a lot of instances, if given the choice between getting money from a company, if you had to choose between getting money from the company checkbook or going after the consumer and the employee and engaging them, you're much better off with the latter uh, in terms of the money we could raise. And companies donate about $16 billion a year. But if companies prioritized engaging their stakeholders and consumers to support different causes, you could raise a lot more money than $16 billion a year. How have you seen that change in the past six months or so with COVID? Any 
you know, we, we're always brought back to the the times we're living in. Any major yeah. shifts that you've seen from a corporate perspective that might be interesting? Well, I think what's what's interesting is 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 what we're often seeing, and you talk a lot about this too, Steve. Is that uh, we're seeing the acceleration, different things, right? In the sense that we're seeing more digital fundraising programs. Uh, but one of the things that I've been really hopeful for is those companies that are really committed to programs and raising money for good organizations, regardless of what they're doing now, as long as, of course, they're open. They're still raising a significant amount of money from causes. I mean, Dutch Brothers Coffee and Muscular Dystrophy just raised over a million dollars with a point of sale campaign at Dutch Brother Coffee stores. So, you know, it shows that with the right commitment and, uh, and the authenticity and the push from employees, you can still raise a lot of money uh, with these programs. But the key now is that the business has to be open. And I think that's where we're really challenged right now, Steve. I actually make a recommendation of 16 different businesses that people should engage with during normal times. And right now, there's only two that are extremely viable, supermarkets and convenience stores. So it goes to show just how much smaller of a pool we have right now to work with. Yeah, that retail environment is a, is a different place at the moment where where you may have previously want to run a, a point of sale program. The traffic isn't just happening there as, as it was in the past. doesn't mean it's, it's zero, but it's certainly not what it was before. And you may have to optimize and where are people today? And they're still in the grocery stores and yep. convenience stores and some other places. But uh, they're not in the movie theater where there's the roundup on the on That's the right. purchase of popcorn right. or things like that that you saw in the past. That's right. And, you know, the, the fortunate thing that we're seeing, though, is we are seeing more online programs. And that's something that represents a tremendous opportunity and actually something that was growing much too slowly before the pandemic. But now we're seeing more programs online. Uh, they could be purchase triggered donation programs or even a roundup or add a dollar at checkout. And these types of programs would definitely see them more at, uh, you know, as many businesses have to and will go through this digital transformation. Yeah, I, I like that you brought that up. You know, I've spent most of the past 15 years predicting when will online giving get over the 10% mm. of total giving mark. I think 2020 uh, will be the year. I, I generally avoid predictions, <laughs> but yeah, given right. the and data I'm seeing, and certainly I've seen this when you look at the retail or space, you know, retail is about 11 per online retail is about 11% of overall retail. That's through the roof. And mm -hmm. certainly a lot of the data that we're seeing with online, we're seeing double digit growth in online across the board. Yeah. And I think this could be the year where the, the new normal really has a, a breakthrough just, you know, given the times we're living in. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if there and one of the things I've been telling people, Steve, is if there is a silver lining to this pandemic, you know, we really are seeing companies being educated in purpose in real time and realizing that purpose is really the 6P. And coming out of this, I think we'll see more companies, both large, midsize and small, being really engaged in cause, realizing that this is an important differentiator for them. Maybe segue here to, to something else that uh, I've talked about in the past, which is this idea that, um, you know, a lot of the times in the sector, fundraising is thought of as a funnel, right? You mm -hmm. pour donors in the top and money comes out the bottom. Or if you're yep. a Seth Godin fan, it's a, it's a megaphone. And if we engage with enough people, 
through the megaphone that money comes out as well. And, and my experience is, is that fundraising is neither a funnel nor is it a megaphone that really it's a loop. It is this iterative, constantly evolving relationship that has to keep moving forward. And because it's not sales, yeah, uh, right. it is not sales in the traditional um, aspect of we think of some economic exchange that uh, Adam Smith wrote about <laughs> a few mm-hmm. hundred years mm-hmm. ago. It is different. And this idea of it is a relationship and that, in, that relationship has to keep moving and evolving. And I think that's never been more true, especially given what's happening right now, that it will be the relationships that you've built in the past few years that help you weather um, some of the storm, but also the, the relationships you're creating right now. Yeah. And what I think is interesting, you know, it's funny, Steve, because when I do my presentation at Georgetown, where you and I share a platform, I talk about a funnel. Uh, And what I think you've done with your loop is you've actually (laughs) connected the bottom of the funnel to the top of the funnel, right? And that's how we get that loop. And I think what's important about any type of, you know, analogy you use, whether it's a loop or a funnel or a bow tie or something like that, that there's a continuum, right? of different things that happen along that process and each stage can feed another stage. So that's where I think we get the interconnectivity. Yeah, I think you're right. It is that idea that one set of actions or engagement is driving something. You're trying to create a a perpetual relationship building machine as opposed to a one and a done. Although when we look at retention rates, um, especially first-time donor retention rates are so anemic, you know, 29% first year donor retention rates. I I think that comes from the mindset of, well, if we pour a bunch of things in the top, something comes out the bottom. And then it's like, okay, great. And then what? Well, we pour more in the top. No, <laughs> it, uh, <laughs> it, it doesn't really work that way. Eventually, if you, yeah. if you, don't, if you don't create something that's sustainable, it, it doesn't work. I don't know. Maybe, you know, we, I'll switch metaphors, but I feel like this is the, you know, at some point in human history, we stopped being hunter-gatherers and we mm-hmm. learned to have an agrarian lifestyle and we're not every day out there hunting for the food. We're actually farming and make it's got to be more of a sustainable approach, you know, yep. sustainable in terms of a sustainable, diversified um, revenue sources. But just how we think about this, it feels more like mindset than skill set. Does that, does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. You know, one of the things I'd love, I think our listeners would like to hear from you, Steve, is something that you riffed on at at Georgetown was, can you tell us a little bit more about the importance of the second gift as opposed to the first gift? Yeah. And so one of the things that we've seen is when we look at retention, for example. So, you know, if I gave you a hundred brand new donors to your organization, the reality is a year later, I'll come back and you'll only have 29 of them left. Mm -hmm. And if they were online donors, I only have 22 of them left. That's how low first-time donor acquisition is. But that's very focused on, you know, channel, right? Was it online versus offline? But one of the things that we found in our research that was different was if I change, well, how did they give? So again, say, Joe, I give your organization 100 brand new donors and I come back a year later. If those donors were donors who gave a single gift, I have 24 out of the 100 left. If those donors made a recurring monthly gift, I have 73 out of Mm -hmm. the 100 left. And so, you know, 
which would you rather have 24 73 it's sort of obvious and so to me that's that then becomes well if i know that frequency of giving is a has a much bigger impact on donor retention then i should not care as much about channel i should care a lot more about frequency and frequency mm-hmm. being monthly and so i think you know long story short is the mindset shift here is lots of organizations are focused on the first gift but what if it was all about the second gift? Because the second gift is what dramatically changes retention rate, lifetime value. And yet, how many orgs have a meeting where they obsess about the second gift? Uh, I mm-hmm. think that's where I would put my time and, and effort mm-hmm. is focusing. How do we get that second gift and, and what would we do? And certainly, regular giving programs help accelerate that tremendously. Yeah, no, I think that's critical, too. And, you know, it actually points, too, Steve, to something I talk a lot about with corporate partnerships. In a lot of instances, corporate partnerships don't come up, don't so much uh, create success as they do reflect it. And a lot of times that happens because organizations have built really powerful, engaged audiences. And that doesn't happen from the first gift, right? That happens from multiple gifts and multiple support for the organization. So, you know, that engagement is really important. Yeah, no, I agree. It's it's that engagement piece. And, you know, the other thing, too, that maybe there's a there's a parallel on the corporate engagement side is we kind of live in a subscription economy now. Right. We mm-hmm. pay for Netflix or Apple yep. Music or Spotify monthly. Uh, we're Substack. used to. Yeah, we're used to transacting that way. Giving is a natural fit, you know, for doing it that way. And certainly from a corporate giving program or even an employee giving program. A monthly giving program might be a, a good foot in the door or at least a a starting point, even if it, it lower levels to try and drive that engagement at some level. Could it could be a five, ten, fifteen, twenty dollar per month gift that ordinarily you say, well, I don't know if we would focus there, but maybe if we're trying to grow employee giving or, or engage with a corporate partner that way, that might be a place to start that maybe in the past you hadn't. Yeah. No, I think it's a much bigger opportunity. And it kind of begs the question too, Steve, why haven't more nonprofits kind of adopted that subscription membership model? Any idea? Lots of theories. I mean, the funny thing is if we were having this discussion in Canada or Australia, New Zealand, the UK, most of the rest of the world, that is the predominant way of giving, right? That uh, Hmm. regular giving, monthly giving is the is the preferred mechanism for giving in most other countries. Now, there's a flip side here, which is those uh, countries tend to struggle with major and mid-level giving. <laughs> so mm-hmm. maybe, uh, you know, you could argue, hey, well, in the U.S., we've developed very strong mid and major gift level programs. And uh, so we're just going about solving the problem a different way. I, I think it's largely cultural and, and historical Mm-hmm. But I feel like, you know, if we're looking for balance, I think yep. you, what we would find is you've got to have both. You can't yep. just rely on the, you know, uh, the, you know, if you're a smaller organization, relying on a few donors to make a very large gifts to sustain you. And at the same time, even a very large organization, we need to grow people who are giving um, smaller amounts over time into mid and major level, major giving level donors as well. Yeah. And, you know, I always I always say something um, when I'm out there speaking, Steve, and I would wonder if you agree with this. I think the future is more red blooded than blue blooded when it comes to fundraising. Would you agree with that? 
Maybe it's been a while since I took a biology class. Double click into that <laughs> red blooded versus blue blooded. <laughs> well, definitely look at you know the difference between you know our organization is really going to survive on you know a, a subscription model, smaller donations, mid sized donations, you know, as opposed to the you know the bigger donations. You know, I, I don't know. You know, it's it's a curious future, right? It is, you know, we've had this discussion at events and and sort of sidebar discussions. Like if you had to choose, if your organization could only focus on major gifts, right? We're going to just depend on the generosity of a small number of individuals. And that's where we're going to focus all of our effort versus more of a, we're going to focus on a broad range Mm. of donors at smaller levels. I feel like it's the... um, I feel like that's the tyranny of the or that we have yeah. to pick between yeah. one or the other. And maybe this gets us back to the loop conversation that I don't think it's an or. I think it's an and. If I'm thinking yeah. long term, if I'm thinking short term and long term, to be fair, right? We you can't just say, well, in a few years, it'll all work out. What about today? Mm-hmm. I would I would say, well, you know, where do those mid-level major gifts and major gifts come from? Uh, I remember reading an article in The Agitator a few years ago. There was the the writer at the time said, well, a major gift is when a, a very special kind of donor has a very special kind of hug with an organization and a <laughs> and you may get a major gift, you know, tongue in cheek. Mm-hmm. But those gifts come from relationships over time. And, and right. certainly we know a good place for those relationships to start could be, um, you know, this person was a monthly donor and certainly know a lot of bequests and plan giving do come from people who had been relatively low donor dollar amount donors for a number of t- years. And then ultimately they make a, a much larger gift as a bequest. Hmm. Yeah, no, very true. And I guess, you know, that's the thing too, is it depends on the organization too. When we look at educational institutions, well, I guess it applies to educational institutions in hospitals that people are ratcheted up over time in terms of how much they give. But, you know, it seems like hospitals in particular, and I can even think of some in my hometown here in Boston, that almost exclusively focus on major gifts. Yeah, there is definitely, if you if you look at higher education institutions and healthcare, their fundraising approach is very similar. Big, big investment and focus on major gifts. They do do annual giving, but sometimes never the two shall meet. And then typically I find a lot of um, other organizations, environmental, cause and cure, international, their focus is the opposite, right? They're focused on right. very large direct marketing programs to, to have, you know, hundreds of thousands or even millions of donors, but at small do- dollar amounts. And the answer is probably somewhere in between, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the question being, at what point is neither model sustainable, right? That mm-hmm. uh, what happens when you, especially we know, like most of those really large gifts coming from a small number of of people at what point do they get tapped out or i don't know it's it's tricky i feel like it's i feel like it's almost like admiral akbar from star wars it's a trap right it's not either (laughs) or that's not the way to think about it it's hey we need to be balanced and we need to invest in both of those areas i'm not i don't know that's right what are other pitfalls you see orgs run into with this 
Yeah, well, you know, and it's interesting too. And I guess at the end of the day, I think it's you know we take it almost looking at from a business perspective. Would you want your business to survive on a a few customers that you think will always come back, or would you rather diversify your customer base so that you'll have a a bigger uh, you know bigger base to draw from? You know, that's a big question I think for nonprofit organizations. And I'm sure there are some right now who are living through that challenge. Um, funding sources dry up or that, that major gift doesn't come through. There, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of faults or cracks in the system perhaps being exacerbated by the, the times we're in at the moment. Even though yeah, you know, there are no. some positive signs of the data in terms of giving starting to rebound, um, right. there are aftershocks. Yeah, no, and then certainly I get a lot of questions now, even from organizations that are looking for corporate partnership programs, is now a good time to start a corporate partnership program. And, you know, it really comes down to, you know, in the beginning, especially focusing on that low-lying fruit that you may already be able to have and already be able to tap, as opposed to putting a lot of resources into something that ultimately only may raise 5 to 15% of your revenues. Yeah, and I think, too, certainly there's a lot of pressure at organizations to, you know, we it, we're willing, we might be willing to invest in something, but we want that ROI to be very short term. And I think, again, yes. there has to be a balance of, yeah, but it, you know, you may have to invest for a certain period of time to see that return, which is why I think whenever someone asks, hey, is now a good time to start X? Yeah. Uh, my response is usually, it would have been a really good idea to start that five years ago, three years right. ago. It's still a good idea today, but you need to yep. be realistic about what you're going to get the return for it. Yep, that's right. No, that's that's true. And, you know, as we've seen so much, too, with nonprofits, Steve, it depends on resources, too. Like, you know, these things can't happen by themselves. And I even try to point out this with corporate partnership programs. I'll get a call from someone and they'll say, hey, you know, I just hired my first corporate partnership person. And I'll say, that's fantastic. You know, Children's Miracle Network has over 50 people working in corporate partnerships. National Park Foundation has 14 people. Share Our Strength has over 20 people. So you have to be realistic about how much one person can accomplish and not to, you know, and, and not kind of put all your eggs in one basket. No, that's true. And also, if you've just brought that person on, have you managed your expectations about when you expect them to start producing. You know, I, I see this too with smaller organizations say we're we're ready to hire our first gift officer and and you know, when should I expect them to be able to start driving in those mid and major level gifts? Mm -hmm. And the reality is it's probably eighteen to twenty four months. Exactly. Are you prepared yeah. to do that, right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. You have to be realistic when you're looking at things and, you know, you have to think about the resources you have and how much one person can accomplish. That's why so often with nonprofits, it takes a lot of focus and a lot of discipline to focus on, you know, what you have the time, energy and resources to focus on and not spreading yourself too thin. No, it's a great point. I, I think whenever you're planning or working with folks, uh, it's usually a good idea to have two columns on the sheet of paper or on the whiteboard or in the Zoom meeting. And one column of the things we're going to do, we're going to say yes to. And the other column is going to be the things we're not going to do. We're going to say no to that let us do <laughs> the things in the other column. And and usually my experience has been, this is true of giving and lots of other things, the th the, the list of things you're not going to do has to be longer than the list of the things you are going to do if, it, if you really are realistic about things. 
Yeah, that's critical. <laughs> yeah, no, maybe to, maybe to wrap up here and, you know, not to oversimplify things, but that's kind of what we, we try and do to get people to wrap around their head around concepts is this idea of when I think about the, the typical nonprofit organization, regardless of their mission or their size, you know, they have to do four things. They need to get revenue, keep revenue, grow revenue and reduce cost. That's it. Yes, they have a, yep. a mission, but no money, no mission. So if they can't get the revenue, keep it, grow it, and reduce cost, that's the lens to focus. What would we do if it was all about growing revenue or what if it was all about reducing cost? At least, you know, and again, I'm not saying it's fundraising is the revenue source or fee for service, but it's got to be something, right? It's got to be, you know, where are you? And then in those four buckets, where do we want to invest? Where, where do we want to focus? And then what do we got to say no to to get there? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, and, and this is where I think in a lot of instances, Steve, marketing comes up for nonprofit organizations and they say, how do we do this? And it's like, you know, if it's not if it's not generating new money for your organization or helping you bring in more money from existing people, it's not marketing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and being being clear that that's what that's the tool you're leveraging to try and get that result. That's right. Joe, thanks for spending some time with me today and exploring some of these topics and uh, really appreciate your insights as always. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Steve. That's it for this episode of the SG Engage podcast. This episode is brought to you by the letters AB. Thanks for listening.